Section 52 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Chapter 15, Economic Change, by William Cunningham. Part 4. In the middle of the 16th century, England was not a competitor with Spain and France for the sovereignty of the world. Her political ambition was far humbler. The dangers that threatened her were so imminent, and her means of defense so insufficient, that it was only by devoting great care to the development of her resources that she could hope to retain political independence. William Cecil found himself called upon to guide the destinies of the realm at a time when the country was destitute of munitions of war. Elizabeth's Protestantism seriously interfered with the opportunities of procuring military stores, the chief supply of saltpeter and sulfur, which were required for gunpowder, as well as of the metals which were necessary for the making of ordnance, came from ports controlled by the great Roman Catholic powers. The native mining industries were quite undeveloped, and England could easily have been prevented from purchasing copper and iron from abroad. Woolen cloth was the chief export from the country. But alum, which was used in the process of dyeing and finishing, was obtained from Ischia, an island which belonged to the Pope. A hoard of bullion laid up against possible emergencies was a political luxury which Cecil could not afford. All the resources that the crown could dispose of, either as personal possessions or by influence exercised on loyal subjects, were devoted to the planting of industries which directly subserved the strength of the realm, and rendered it less hopelessly unprepared for the struggle that could not be indefinitely postponed. When the storm burst at last, and England had to get ready for meeting the Spanish Armada, it was found that the leeway had been entirely made up, and that English guns and gunners were as good as those of Spain, and better too. It would in any case have been useless for Cecil to imitate the Spanish policy, and amass bullion to serve for the payment of mercenaries. England had no access to silver mines, and she was forced to rely on her own sons to man her fleets and to serve in her armies. It was essential to adhere to the policy which was even then traditional in England, and to take pains that there should be a well-diffused and healthy population. With this end in view, the government was specially anxious to maintain tillage as an avocation which gave employment to vigorous laborers, and agriculture came to be encouraged not merely on economic but on military grounds. In a similar way, much attention was paid to securing favorable conditions for the maintenance of a large seafaring population. The fishing trades were important as a source of wealth, but even more so as a school of seamanship and a ready way of training men who should be capable of serving in naval warfare. This employment was artificially stimulated, and people were compelled by law to eat fish on three days in the week. The special exigencies of the situation forced Cecil to devote the greatest possible care to developing native resources of every kind in such a fashion that they should, as much as possible, contribute directly to the national strength. The government was, of course, aware that the general increase of industrial skill and of commercial activity was likewise of importance. In the actual circumstances of England, these were the only means of procuring treasure at all. But since the supply could only be secured indirectly, it was not treated as an immediate, far less as an exclusive object, as it had been with the Spaniards. The method which Cecil adopted for carrying out these aims presents another interesting contrast with the course of affairs in Spain. 
He had, indeed, to obtain assistance from the group of Augsburg capitalists who had taken such a leading part in European finance, but he relied on them rather for their technical skill and enterprise in organizing undertakings than for the capital with which new schemes were carried out. The usual plan was to grant a concession to a company, the capital being subscribed in England, though the management was controlled by the Hochstetters and other German adventurers. By these means, the arts of brass founding and wire drawing were planted, and mining for the useful metals was largely carried on. Most important of all was the skill of German engineers. Their methods of pumping water were introduced and rendered mining possible where it had never been practiced before. Not only the hardware trades, but whatever other industry was subsidiary to any of the forms of national strength came under Cecil's special care. Among these may be instanced the manufacture of sailcloth, which he was at personal pains to promote. The government looked with a favorable eye on the introduction of useful industries of any kind, but especially welcomed those which consisted in the working up of native products, and which could save the necessity of importing finished goods from abroad. The favorite mode of encouragement was one which cost the crown nothing, while yet it encouraged alien adventurers to do their best. Exclusive privileges for the exercise of the trade were granted, and in this way the manufacture of glass, paper, starch, soap, and other commodities of common consumption were successfully established. Circumstances were specially favorable to such attempts at this particular time. England served as a haven of refuge for many of the artisans who were dispersed by the wars in the Netherlands, and skilled workmen emigrated hither even from such distant countries as Greece, Italy, and Spain. Some of them appear to have possessed capital, and many of them were highly skilled in departments of industry which had been practically unrepresented in England. The dislike felt by Englishmen for foreigners was almost as strong as that of the Spaniards, and there was some little difficulty in disarming the local hostility to these settlers. The new industries were on the whole developed on capitalist lines. The old craft guilds had ceased to be effective forces, and there was little serious opposition from them. Insofar as native industrial organization was reinvigorated in England towards the close of this reign, it took the form of capitalist associations, and these appear to have been for a time the strongholds of opposition to the alien invasion. The central government, however, was firm in its attitude of encouraging the immigrants, while it also desired so far as possible to merge them with the existing population and to use them as means for the technical education of Englishmen. In this, Cecil, who personally revised the regulations for settling the aliens, was singularly successful. Though the Dutch and Walloon colonies were separately organized for social and religious purposes, they soon came to be highly appreciated by their neighbors as an important factor in the economic welfare of the country. Spain had suffered seriously by imposing disabilities on aliens, and England gained immensely by encouraging their immigration and absorbing them as an integral part of the nation. The improvement of industry had a very favorable reaction on the progress of agriculture. At the beginning of Elizabeth's reign, the condition of rural life was eminently unsatisfactory. An increasing area was being diverted from tillage to pasture farming. The wool which was produced in such large quantities, and the cloth into which it was manufactured, fetched very high prices. This export trade was undoubtedly the channel through which a portion of the treasure from the New World began to flow into England. Beneficial as this development was in many ways, it yet entailed serious grievances in rural districts. 
the price of corn was relatively low, and there seemed to be a danger that the food supply would fall short. Measures were devised for giving the farmer the best opportunity for selling his corn in any part of the country, and not unfrequently for exporting it on easy terms. Great pains were also taken to ensure that he should have an adequate supply of labor, and to encourage those particular forms of industry which were subsidiary to agricultural operations. In no other country of Europe were the interests of agriculture put so prominently forward. English statesmen realized that it was necessary to render tillage profitable if it was to be properly maintained, and progress in the industrial arts was treated as a subordinate consideration. As the demands of the industrial population for food increased, and as the improving marine of England gave access to markets abroad, those who were pursuing agriculture as a trade found that they could work at a profit. The revival of agriculture, moreover, was possible without a serious diminution of the area which was devoted to sheep. The conflict between the two rural interests in England was not so keen as in Spain. By the introduction of convertible husbandry, a better return could be obtained from the same acreage. The old common fields were broken up, land was occupied in severality, and each farmer was free to pursue his avocation to the best of his ability and means. By this new method, the land enjoyed long periods of rest, and the soil recovered from the exhausting effects of the persistent, though slovenly, tillage to which it had long been subjected. Enclosure and readjustment afforded the opportunity of greatly increasing the production from the land without additional expenditure of capital. The improvement of industry and tillage had very favorable effects on the commerce of the country. There was each year a larger and larger available surplus which could be exported. The export of English cloth came to be entirely in the hands of English shippers, and when the opportunity at length occurred for England to plant colonies beyond the seas, she was able to meet their immediate necessities without any strain upon her internal condition partly through the force of circumstances, but partly also through the wisdom of the government, there was a development of the manufacture of native products, which reacted in a healthy and natural manner on the improvement of agriculture and the increase of trade. The admirable picture given in Hale's Discourse of the Commonweal of the condition of affairs under Edward VI shows us the evils of the transition at a time when both the crown and the people felt the pressure of poverty. This was in some ways more apparent than real, and was partly due to the debased condition of the coinage. When, with the restoration of the currency, England began to receive her share of the treasure of the New World, improvement proceeded rapidly. At the close of Elizabeth's reign, the people were wonderfully prosperous, and the pauperism of earlier years had ceased to be a serious problem. The political future of England was largely affected by the fact that the industrial population was becoming wealthy, while the crown was relatively poor. The rapidity with which countries may recover from the ravages of war has been often remarked upon. In no case was it more strikingly exemplified than by the marvelous growth of material prosperity in France so soon as Henry IV was complete master of the realm. This can hardly be ascribed, however, to a natural recuperation after the removal of the disturbing causes. It was really due to the view which Henry and his advisers took of the duty of government and the excellent manner in which they discharged their task. It was to the interest of the French monarchy, with its large income drawn from taxation, that measures should be taken to advance internal trade, to plant industries, and to improve agriculture so that the people might be prosperous and able to contribute their quota to the revenue. Henry IV set himself consciously and deliberately 
to develop the material resources of France, and his schemes were so well devised that the foundations of the magnificent and powerful monarchy of Louis the Fourteenth were successfully laid. The king was admirably assisted by Sully, and profited from the suggestions of Laffemas and Olivier de Serres, who were respectively experts in the organization of industry and in promoting agriculture, and he possessed, moreover, the means for carrying out the schemes that met his approval. The revival of France was brought about on royal initiative by royal administrators, and to a large extent by drawing on royal wealth for the necessary capital. A comparison with the position of the crown in England, when Cecil was working for the development of the realm, may serve to point the contrast. Elizabeth was very poor, and she was particularly averse to summoning Parliament and levying taxation. She had little money to spare for encouraging improvements in rural and industrial pursuits that would only bring indirect gains to the government. The King of France had a large permanent income from taxation, and it was worth his while to invest a part of it in undertakings that were not directly remunerative. The increase of the wealth of its subjects was the surest method of increasing the prospective income of the crown. At the time when Sully became superintendent of finances in 1598, he had to face an enormous burden of debt entailed by the expenses of the wars in which Henry had rendered his possession of the throne secure. The debt amounted to no less than 348 million livres. Loans had been obtained by pledging the personal estates of the king, as well as a large part of the receipts from taxation. Only a comparatively small portion of the taille was available for current expenditure. Sully's first care was to reform the abuses in the collection of the revenue. He completely overhauled the fiscal administration and rendered the incidence of taxation more equable, while, by cancelling heavy arrears of the tile, he relieved the taxpayers from an intolerable burden and placed them in a position of solvency, which rendered it possible for them to meet the current demands of the government. By these means, he was able to steadily diminish the burden of indebtedness while there was money at command not only for the expenses of the court, but also for much-needed public works. The most important undertaking was that of facilitating internal trade by improving the water communication through different parts of France. Humphrey Bradley, who had had much experience in Holland, was the principal engineer employed. In some cases, rivers were opened to the passage of barges, while canals were also laid out to connect the river basins, and thus to provide great channels of through communication. A canal was planned between the Garonne and the Aude to complete a waterway from the Bay of Biscay to the Mediterranean, and another to connect the Loire with the Seine was begun. Great engineering works were also undertaken in the way of banking and draining, so as to recover considerable stretches of land that were lying waste, and attempts were made to improve the facilities for travel by land, especially in the reconstruction of bridges. In many instances, the town chiefly concerned defrayed part of this last expense, but the main burden generally lay with the government, which had been responsible for initiating these improvements, and no less a sum than a million livres a year was devoted to the construction of main roads. The policy pursued by the French crown in the planting of industry is open to criticism, but it must at least be allowed to have attained success. France was already richly supplied with the necessaries of life, and considerable progress had been made in the useful arts, but large sums were expended yearly in the purchase of luxuries, and it seemed possible to introduce the manufacture of silk and artistic goods so that there should be less reason for the drain of treasure 
and that the country might be entirely self-sufficing, not only for necessaries, but also for luxuries. Sully was doubtful as to this policy. He would have preferred to check the use of luxuries by sumptuary laws and to develop those industries in which French products were the materials employed. This objection was partly met by extensive efforts to introduce sericulture on French soil, and on the whole, experience seems to have proved that the king was well advised in following the example of Venice and Florence and trying to plant this new industry, even though it required large subventions at first. In the latter part of the 17th century, it flourished to such an extent as to provide an important and valuable article of export trade, so that foreign customers had to pay a considerable balance in bullion. The manufacture of glass and that of fine pottery were introduced during this reign into various districts of France by persons who had special privileges conferred upon them. The tapestry manufacture needed still further encouragement and obtained a royal subvention of 100,000 livres, and a sum of 150,000 livres was lent to two merchants of Rouen who proposed to undertake the making of fine cloth. While such pains were taken to stimulate exotic and plant new industries, a very careful scheme was devised for the reorganization of the corps de métier, so as to provide more effective supervision for the existing trades. Attempts were made to check the preposterous claims of the kings of the mercers, and to break down the arbitrary restrictions by which the status of master in any trade had been guarded. A council of commerce was established, which carried out some useful changes in particular trades, though it did not reconstitute the corps de métier as completely as might have been desirable. Their powers were, however, limited, and they were not allowed to obstruct enterprising individuals who were trying to introduce improved processes of manufacture. Many abuses were checked, and these institutions, as modified, continued to be a convenient piece of administrative machinery. The efforts that were made to improve agriculture also resulted in the stereotyping of the old social organization. The king could not interfere to force on progress in the arts of tillage. All that could be done was to set an example of enterprise on the royal estates and to bring pressure upon the magnates to follow it. The cultivators could only be effectively reached through the landed aristocracy, and there was a tendency to coerce them for their good by the exercise of seigneurial powers. The preservation of the relics of natural economy were also unfortunate inasmuch as the métiers were thus cut off from the stimulating influence of the independent pursuit of their calling as a trade. The French government was extraordinarily successful in consolidating the nation by these means. Separate and local interests were cared for, but they were always kept in conscious subordination to the prosperity of the entire realm. The views of Henry were, on the whole, most judicious, and the suddenness of the revival of French prosperity is a testimony to the effectiveness of the administration. But a heavy price was being paid for these advantages. The national economic life was rendered dependent on royal initiative and royal supervision. In subsequent times, French industry suffered from the over-elaboration of administrative machinery, while the commercial and colonial development of the country was destitute of the healthy vigor called out where private enterprise was allowed free play. The success of the royal policy in England and France presents a marked contrast to the failure of the Spanish monarch, whose ultimate aim was nevertheless the same. Each prince desired to raise the whole land over which he ruled into the highest pitch of prosperity. It was impossible for Charles V or Philip II to accumulate the treasure which was so necessary for the country, 
and with the aid of which each hoped in his turn to become the most powerful ruler in the world. The American silver could not be kept in Spain, and there was so little native capital for use in that widely extended empire that it declined. England, on the other hand, was consciously developed by the great middle class, who were ready to invest comparatively small sums in promising undertakings, while the government gave active support to the foreign capitalists and workers whose experience was so valuable. The English minister Cecil nursed the realm as carefully as if he were the steward of a private estate, but he was hampered by the poverty of the crown, and his great work lay in stimulating other people to take the initiative and to trust to themselves for their own remuneration. As we have just seen, the revival of France was due to the capital in the hands of the king, whose measures were largely innovations and experiments carried out in spite of opposition. In England, the development of the country was carried on by the people in France for the people, but both countries attained a high degree of national prosperity. Huge empires, like those of Macedonia and Rome, had already been familiar in the ancient world, but nations constituted like France and England were something quite new. The intimate union of all parts of such large areas, and the interdependence of each part on the other, as well as the conscious subordination of local interests to the larger idea of the realm, these were conceptions not merely distinct from the civic policy of the Middle Ages, but equally foreign to the idea of the great polities of ancient days. The nation is not only a new phenomenon, but it is the characteristic feature of what we are wont to call modern times, and hence the rise of Holland as the heir of Portugal and a victor over Spain, the increased importance of England, and the revival of France mark an era in economic history. The transition from the medieval to the modern age has been accomplished. We are no longer concerned with the struggle of town with town, but of nation with nation, each trying to secure the greatest material advantages for its own land and its own people. The chief economic interest of the subsequent century lies in the study of the means taken by these three rivals to build up their own strength and to weaken their adversaries. Each had entered on a career of material prosperity and each had adapted its system, with more or less success, to modern industrial and commercial conditions. It is worthwhile, however, to cast a retrospecting glance at some of the places which had been distanced in the race for wealth, and to inquire why so many of the cities which had attained to great prosperity in the 14th and 15th centuries failed to share in the extraordinary impulse which was given to progress by the discovery of the new world and its treasures. Some of them did not advance, and others distinctly declined. The change of commercial routes was the most obvious reason for the decadence of some of the magnificent cities of the Middle Ages. Commerce takes the path of least resistance, and none of the overland routes to the east or passes across the Alps could compare with the convenience of an unbroken voyage from the Moluccas to Amsterdam. The Italian and South German towns which had been occupied with the eastern trade and the Baltic and Lithuanian cities which had been the great depots of the Hansa League ceased to be the chief centers of commerce, and from the mere fact of their geographical position were left on a siding. In the case of Stettin and other towns which had been merely mercantile, and where there had been no success in developing industry as a subsidiary to commerce, the decline of trade was a desperate blow. The towns which had developed an industrial life, Cologne and Strasbourg, Augsburg and Nuremberg, Venice, Genoa, and Florence, did indeed suffer severely. They lost their facilities for access to the best markets, or for the most convenient purchase of food and materials, 
but they were able to readapt themselves to their diminished opportunities and to utilize their resources for the maintenance of a prosperous, though less notable, economic life. Certain social conditions prevented some communities from adopting innovations which were necessary for maintaining the continuance of their prosperity. Where society had been very definitely organized and a social system was stereotyped, many insensible hindrances opposed themselves to modification of any kind. Success in the new order of things depended on adaptability. Capitalists were organizing industry on other lines and opening up wider commercial connections. Those who were unable to adopt the modern methods of business were necessarily distanced in the race. The industrial centers where the craft guilds had been most vigorous and had retained their power most successfully were at a positive disadvantage in entering on competition with neighbors who had imposed no such restrictions. Modern nations have incorporated the towns which were formerly so powerful and which failed to maintain the leading position they once held. This has been in part at all events because their very success under the old system rendered them incapable of giving a cordial welcome to the new. In conjunction with this social obstacle to progress may be specially noticed the antagonism which was felt in many quarters to the introduction or the retention of alien and seemingly incongruous elements of population. The strength of the capitalist system consists in its ability to utilize the most varied elements. Both Holland and to a less extent England, in receiving immigrants from other countries, increased their industrial resources by that most precious of all national possessions, great skill in industrial employments of every kind. Varieties of type and of intelligence have been of the greatest importance in introducing new methods of business and improved processes of production. France and Spain, on the contrary, suffered severely from the policy which insisted on assimilating the whole population to conformity in religious and political thought. Such were the trading and social conditions which placed capital at a disadvantage, and which determined those who controlled it to seek opportunities for investment in other lands. But there was one occupation throughout Europe which offered little attraction to the enterprising capitalist, and which therefore continued to lie almost outside the sphere of his operations. The agricultural system on the continent in general was highly stereotyped. In Germany and Hungary, serfdom remained. In Spain, France, and Italy, vestiges of natural economy survived. Such a reorganization of the population as would have produced better results presented great difficulties, while the introduction of improved methods often involved an outlay of capital and a diminished rate of return. The small proprietary and cultivating peasantry were destitute of the means of introducing improvements, even if the value of the change had been apparent. Some public works for the benefit of agriculture were undertaken by the crown both in France and Spain, but it was only in Holland where there was a plethora of capital, and in England where the trade of the farmer was encouraged, that private capitalists became interested in the improvement of the soil. There was, as a consequence, little alteration in the condition of the rural population, and the first changes which occurred with the gradual introduction of capitalism were often for the worse. It was left for the social and political revolutions of the last hundred years to sweep away the system which had been previously left untouched by economic progress. These were the general conditions that determined the ultimate distribution of the treasure which was brought from the New World. Transferred in the 16th century, partly in response to military requirements, partly by successful depredation, and partly by mere smuggling, 
This treasure sooner or later found its way into the hands of agents of commerce, who desired to use it as capital, and who employed it in the places and avocations where they had most reason to expect a large profit. The actual return depended partly on social, partly on physical conditions, but the results that followed were curious and unequal, for while some of the more backward countries moved rapidly forward, making huge strides in wealth and material prosperity, whole classes in every community and large districts of continental Europe remained almost stationary, untouched and unaffected by the march of progress. Nevertheless, though these great economic movements were retarded, they could not be wholly arrested. Capitalism has gradually overcome the medieval obstacles. It has swept away local exclusiveness and has been the means of developing large economic areas. A revolution has taken place in business practice, and the breaking down of all commercial restrictions is a change which has affected the traders in all lands. Industry has become capitalistic, and the whole foundation of trading relations and commercial morality has been altered so as to open indefinite possibilities to every merchant. Civic has given place to national economic life. At the commencement of the 17th century, neither Germany nor Italy had become true nations, but in the course of time, the European peoples have come to conform more and more to the larger type of organization that had already arisen in England and in France. End of section 52. Recording by Colleen McMahon.